next we have Joseph Thorne. Um, he studied for his undergraduate degree at Corpus Christi College in Oxford and his master's at Cardiff and he's currently a third year PhD student at Liverpool John Moores University. So his work looks at <coughs> the material interactions of decadent social ne networks at the Fin de Siecle. His chapter, Ernest and Aubrey, Friendship and Rivalry at the Fin de Siecle, will appear in the forthcoming collection Betwixt the Bounds of Life and Death, Selected Essays on Ernest Dowson. In 2016, he worked as a research assistant for the Liverpool Central Library Exhibition, and uh, last year he co-organised an international conference, Neo-Victorian Decadences, which was held in Durham. So his paper today is entitled Social Grotesques, <laughs> Beardsley, Caricatures and the Decadent Gift Economy. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, so while Max Beerbohm is probably the most famous caricaturist of the fantasy Eccle, Aubrey Beardsley also had a powerful engagement with the art form. Indeed, he and Beerbohm were friends and even entered into a social dialogue through their exchange of caricatures. The decadents were particularly preoccupied with this idea of caricature because <clears throat> it was a form of parody. For them, it was a means of presenting the self as an unconventional being and an important aspect of what I'm calling the decadent gift economy. Creating and exchanging parodies of themselves and their friends provided a material form of interaction. Given the importance which they place in ironising their interactions with friends, rivals and acquaintances, it's no surprise that parodic versions of themselves and of those they knew became powerful social tools within decadent networks. The act of giving and receiving a gift creates social bonds between the members of a group, and the gifting of caricatures, therefore, became an intrinsic part of the action of decadent sociability. The, art, the anthropologist Marcel Mauss's work on gift economies illuminates the interchange of caricatures in this period. Now, he suggests that many societies, in many societies, quote, exchanges and contracts take place in the form of presence. In theory, these are voluntary. In reality, they're given and reciprocated obligatorily. Gifts establish a network of obligations. They're, quote, strictly compulsory on pain of private or public warfare, though it ought to be acknowledged in fantasy Eccler London. Such warfare was, of course, purely social. Now, obviously, Mouse doesn't actually address late 19th century Europe. He even suggests the structures he writes about are incompatible with capitalist industrialist systems. Sure, certainly, under capitalism, money is the dominant transactional currency. But there are other kinds of markets which can run counter to its hegemony. As Pet Pierre Bourdieu shows, social and cultural currencies exert influence in society, and these lead to separate markets of, of their own. Mouse acknowledges that, that there are different yet similar versions of the marketplace in some societies, but I think doesn't go far enough down this avenue of inquiry. He presupposes that all modern markets are purely financial, and therefore have no place for a gift economy alongside them. And yet, gifted objects had powerful social force in the decadent economy. Caricatures functioned as material objects which accrued value by being exchanged throughout an appreciative network. Giving a present does more than creating a self-sense of obligation between parties. It also gives the gift giver an opportunity to performatively display generosity and taste. The element is of self-promotion is particularly clear 
when we look at decadents giving copies of their own works to friends, acquaintances, and significant members of artistic and literary networks whose attention they wish to court. There's a complex discourse of praise which served to elevate both parties in the gifting ritual. The playful balancing act of egos is, I think, very apparent throughout Decton social interactions. Now, avant-garde writers and artists have used laughter to ironise this self-presentation and the representation of their friends, and in his essay, The Spirit of Caricature, B.F.O. explicitly links caricature with <coughs> ironisation. For him, laughter is the aesthetic of caricature, mimicking the way in which, quote, tears are shed at sight of a very beautiful statue. Underpinning the decadent creative philosophies, decadent laughter transformed into personal interactions into a form of art. Caricature allowed decadence to resist social expectation and perpetuate a collective self-fashioning of identity. Decadent artists revel in the carnivalesque chaos embodied by the, by the caricatured self. Their transgressive tendencies are epitomised by the self-portraits which Beardsley produced throughout his career. He constantly plays up his own sense of monstrosity, and in 1891, he included an unflattering description of himself in a letter to A.W. King, writing, I am now 18 years old, with a vile constitution, a sallow face and sunken eyes, long red hair, a shuffling gait, and a stoop. Beardsley's playfully highlighting his own physical shortcomings, and I think there's an element of this in play in his admittedly fairly handsome self-portrait. The stark lines he uses to evoke his cheekbones give his head a definite skeletal quality. Aware of his physical illness, I feel Beardsley's presenting himself as a ghoul. Now, in his portrait himself, which appeared in the third volume of The Yellow Book, it continues this strategy of decadent self-representation. Despite the title, Beardsley is a marginal presence in his own image, buried between the covers of a monstrously large bed, his tiny heads dwarfed by his absurdly oversized nightcap. The, drawing fo- the drawing's focal point isn't the figure in bed, but the armless, leering, breasted satyr decorating his bedpost. Its presence anchors the image in the grotesque, and the French legend in the top right-hand corner reinforces this suggestion of monstrosity. Par les dieux jumeaux, tous les monstres ne sont pas en Afrique. By the twin gods, not all monsters are in Africa. Viewers of this image, Beardsley suggests, should see him as a grotesque feature, foreshadowing the claim he made in his interview with Arthur H. Lawrence in The Idler. If I am not grotesque, I am nothing. Beardsley's self-caricatures are part of his personal publicity strategy. He's fashioning himself into a decadent construct in the public eye. And there's perhaps no better example of this than the way in which he exploited the form of the photographic portrait in the picture taken by Frederick Evans. Adopting the pose of the Notre Dame gargoyle Le Strige, he transforms his distinctive physiognomy into Gothic architecture. Fashioning one's own image into an icon of monstrosity was a direct challenge to notions of propriety and public decency, staking a claim for the transgressive self through artistic self-representation. Meanwhile, the controversial caricatures of Wilde, which Beardsley inserted into his illustrations for Salome, 
demonstrate interpersonal, professional dynamics and grotesque images. Now, Susan Owens interprets most of these negatively. She sees a direct attack on Wilde's authority authority in Enter Herodias, an attack, she suggests, which shows Beardsley saw Wilde as a plagiarist. Now, the Wildian character in Peer is attendant upon Herodias, a court magician, a shamanic figure, in an owl headdress, or at least that's how many viewers interpret it. For Owens, this makes him a charlatan. And she goes on to elaborate the parallels between this wild-esque image and the Roman god Mercury. As is typical of representations of the god, Wilde carries a caduceus and has a cape draped over one shoulder. He's Mercury, both the messenger god and, significantly, god of thieves. Critics argue that due to personal animosity between Beardsley and Wilde, Beardsley skewered him in illustration. But this doesn't quite add up for me. Beardsley was aware that his artistic style was in many ways as borrowed as Wilde's literary style. If he accuses Wilde of theft, he must first also accuse himself. Also, the Wilde figure, and unfortunately this representation, this reproduction, you can't quite see it, but the Wilde figure is armed with a book bearing the title Salome, presumably representing the text of the play. Far from being a charlatan magician, it would appear this Wilde figure is actually conjuring the play into existence from within, in, within its pages. Moreover, the fact that Beardsley's own distinctive three-line signature is directly beneath the outstretched arm suggests a direct creative affinity between Beardsley and Wilde. Now, Wilde also appears as the moon in both The Woman in the Moon and A Platonic Lament, and they show the jowls distinctive to many contemporary cartoons of Wilde. Now, this sort of puffy frown, Owen suggests, seemingly presents Wilde as an and the moon as an irredeemable sybarite, drunk and seeking everywhere for lovers. Such hostile readings of these moon caricatures do draw inspiration from the play's text. Herod describes the moon with horrified, not to mention titillated fascination. She is like a mad woman, a mad woman who is seeking everywhere for lovers. She is naked too. She is quite naked. This speech could associate the moon, and in the illustrations, wild, with gluttony, madness, and sexual excess. But <clears throat> and this would play into ideas that it's just character assassination, but it's much too simplistic a reading, and ignores the nuances and ambiguities inherent in Wilde's text. The moon's a multivalent symbol in Salome. Herod may think it's a mad woman, but it's also so, so much more. For Herodias, it's a woman rising from a tomb. To the young Syrian, uh, oh sorry, to Herodias's page, it's a woman rising from a tomb. To the young Syrian, a little princess. For Salome, a virgin. And for the supremely practical Herodias, the moon is like the moon. That is all. <laughs> all the characters of the play project their desires onto the moon, but don't expose its true nature. It's more a subjective mirror than an exact symbolic representation. And, by portraying Wilde as the moon, Beardsley makes him a focal point of desire in a play all about desire, as Linda's pointed out in her article, uh, what, Beard, I forget the name, but the making of Salome turns up in there somewhere. It problematises the traditional assumption that Wilde and Beardsley had a purely hostile collaboration. Far from attacking the dramatist, Lind as Linda argues, Beardsley's association with the wa of Wilde with the moon, quote, 
recognises its attraction for Wilde both as a symbol and a technique to reveal the character's preoccupations. Beardsley's caricatures, buried within the Salome illustrations, suggest a sensitive reading of Wilde's artistic ethos. Theirs might not always have been the smoothest relationship, but Beardsley's images expose decadent professional sociability at work. Now, the cartoons which Beardsley and Beerbone produce for each other provide a definite case study for how caricatures articulate sociability without the professional career dynamics which colour leadings of the Salome. The images demonstrate Beerbone's theories of caricature in action, a philosophy of transformative exaggeration whereby the subject must, quote, be melted down as in a crucible, and then, as from the solution, be fashioned anew. He must emerge with not one particle of himself lost, yet not with a particle of himself as it was before. The two artists thus comically refashion each other in order to expose a ludic parody of decadent selfhood, uniting the two even as they poke fun at each other. <clears throat> Beardsley published two parodic images of Beardbomest creatures in the Bon Mot series. In the Bon Mot of Charles Lamb and Douglas Gerald, Beerbohm appears as a well-dressed fetus, one of Beardsley's favourite grotesque icons, in an evening wear and a small cape. The later caricature, in the Bon Mot of Samuel Foote and Theodore Hook, depicts Beerbohm as a behatted baby, complete with bat wings and ridiculously short cane, leading a tiny dog in a decorative dog coat. The devilish wings add an impish quality to the dandyish baby, which Linda describes in the catalogue raisonne as a tribute to Beerbohm's ability to transform people through caricature. Beardsley presents Beerbohm as an over-excellent <coughs> baby to draw attention to his perceived youth. He was, after all, three days younger than Beardsley. <laughs> the illustrator might be claiming the authority of age over his marginally younger friend, but the performance of youth was an important part of the decadent pose. Assuming it allowed them to poke fun at a staid and respectable status quo. So, in 1904, John Lane complained that, quote, Beardsley's defect as an art editor was youth. He would not take himself seriously. As an art editor and an, a draftsman, he was almost a practical joker. But Beardsley's presentation of himself as a willfully immature artist was, above all else, a means of subversion. By depicting Beerbohm as a grotesque child, Beardsley is giving his friend a kind of transgressive authority. He is constantly new and in rebellion against the old. Beerbohm reciprocated Beardsley's cartoonish treatment in his collection Caricatures of 25 Gentlemen. The Beardsley who appears in this book is a monstrously effete creature, almost entirely arched nose and tapering fingers. While Beardsley's caricature of Beerbone gave him a lapdog, Beerbone's monstrous version of Beardsley has a little toy dog on wheels. Beerbone's drawing attention to Beardsley's self-conscious artificiality in a bizarre form of enconium. If, as Chris Snodgrass suggests, caricature is where the dandy and the grotesque have traditionally met, then these over-refined grotesques allow the dandy caricaturists enact their preferred social identities in front of each other. The hyperbolic grotesquerie of the decadent caricature thus propagates the artificial and the monstrous as a new social ideal for their networks. 
drawing reciprocal images of friends, gave this ideology a material form of interchange in front of an appreciative audience. Caricatures of a single person like this forge a bond between illustrator and subject, but caricatures of a group engaged in socialising could establish a decadent framework. Beerbone's Some Persons of the 90s presents a decadent society of grotesque types engaging in conversation, from the bloated wild to the iconically spindly Beardsley. The image is a means of articulating sociability. Here, everyone's somewhat grotesque, but together they form a network which can subvert society from its borders. In his frontispiece to John Davidson's plays, Beardsley had produced an image which included some of the people who circulated through his networks, including his sister Mabel on the far left, Wilde dressed in the leopard skin of a bapant, and Richard Le Gallienne as the masked man in the back. Now, Snodgrass suggests that the notably handsome Le Gallienne is here portrayed as Davidson's character, Scaramouche, who's very ugly. The image appears to playfully call attention to Le Gallienne's vanity by linking him with its antithesis. In the spirit of caricature, Beerbo makes it explicit that ridiculing a friend in this kind of way through caricature isn't actually a hostile act. The most revered should be made just as ridiculous as the most despised. Despite the number of unflattering portraits in some persons of the 90s, it's ultimately a supportive form of parody. As Margaret Stett points out, while Beerbohm affectionately emphasises Rothenstein's shortness, he, quote, never drew upon contemporary racial stereotypes of Jews. He's satirising his friend without racial vitriol or abuse. Beerbohm's self-parodic agenda is made clear by the partially obscured figure of Enoch Soames, whom you can just about make out there. And so Soames <coughs> is just emerging from beyond the edge of the page. And he's an eponymous protagonist of Beerbohm's 1916 short story about a fantasiacle minor poet who sells his soul to the devil in order to find out whether or not his reputation will have survived in a hundred years' time. Featuring this, char this character in a depiction of actual historical decadence blurs the boundaries between fact and fiction. The fictional Soames is, is engaged in what seems to be an animated discussion with W.B. Yeats, implying that there's something semi-fictional about all of Beerbohm's friends. As in his cartoon of Beardsley dragging a dog on wheels, Beerbohm's covertly celebrating decadent artificiality by including someone who's entirely artificial. He highlights the playful pretense of his friends and colleagues, and his image takes part in the performance of decadent selfhood. Rather than undermining the strength of the network, their brand of self-conscious individuality connected them as a network of individual grotesques. Caricature is a key strategy of decadent interactions. When Ada Leveson wrote in her punch parody from the queer and yellow book that, quote, we may learn from the caricatures of the day what the decadents were in outward semblance, she makes explicit the representative dynamic behind decadent caricature. Decadence is above all else a mimetic philosophy. The only way to enact it is to allude to and feed upon its cultural products and social behaviours. By lampooning his friends and colleagues through caricature, 
Beardsley positions himself within the social world of the fin de siècle avant-garde. The giving and receiving of these grotesque images creates social bonds between the members of the group by establishing a network of obligations between members. And these obligations strengthen social bonds by creating a discourse of exchange in published art. Beardsley's black and white grotesques captured the social mood of a group in which the decadents must become their own caricatures as a rite of social passage. Thank you. Mm-hmm.